Welcome to the St. Paul's Episcopal Church podcast. Here, we will share our thoughts, voices, and prayers. St. Paul's is a progressive community of faith with ancient roots. You can find out more about St. Paul's at their website, stpauls.dioup.org, or find us on Facebook. If you would like to share your words on this podcast, send us a message. May God's peace be with you today and always. twice a week, 9.30. Words twice a week on Thursday is a series of introductory thoughts on the scripture lessons for the coming Sunday. For this Sunday, that would be Job 1, 1 and 2, 1 to 10. The Psalm 26, Genesis 2, 18 to 24, Psalm 8, Mark 10, 2 through 16. Um, it would be good if you had looked those over ahead of time or at least had them available to scan as we go along. As I said, it's a series of um, introductory thoughts presented as bullet points, and I'm using this sound to represent each bullet point and a new thought. <clears throat> and we'll start with a haiku this week. Words twice a week, except when sunlight on water calls me from afar. Well, some can. Okay, some thoughts on some of the lectionary texts for this Sunday. Job 1.1, 2.1-10. Job, the Lord, Satan, and later on, Job's wife. Satan, the Satan, Lucifer, is one of the heavenly beings. There was a piece on NPR about a book, The Morning Star, I think it was, or something like that, Apparently, in the folklore of a variety of cultures, Lucifer was connected with Venus, the morning star. Anyway, here Satan is the accuser, the voice of doubt. Where do we see that in life today? Satan suggests Job is good because his life is comfortable. God has been good to him. Job, God, rather, claims Job is good because God's goodness has given rise in Job to a love of goodness for its own sake. So between God and Job, the threat that suffering poses can only be overcome by the other party. Then through most of the book, they don't talk with each other. They must trust in silence. God depends on Job to overcome Satan's accusation. Does this also describe relationships between humans, between a husband and wife? between a parent and child, between strangers, between nations. 
Can we always assume the other has our best interests at heart? He, Job, still persists in his integrity, chapter 2, verse 3. This is after Job has lost property and children, chapter 1, and commented, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan suggests Job would suffer more in his own body than in the suffering of his children. What do you think? I think most parents would rather suffer themselves than have the children suffer. Is this one of the ways that Satan differs from God? And Job's wife, why persist in your integrity? She says, second time we have heard that phrase. What do you think it means? The Love People book talks about a congruent life, an authentic life, a life in harmony with the creation Job accepts that good and bad both come from God. Is that how we think about it? Might Job have in mind something that we might think more, think of more as good and bad both are part of life? Where does bad come from? From Satan, God, life, humanity? God's challenge to the Satan goes beyond action to include motive. Job is not only good, he loves goodness. The divine claim is not about God, but about the effectiveness of God on humanity, which raises the question, can humans be transformed to love goodness as an end in itself? That's from preaching the Revised Common Lectionary. Job's choices, one, the wife's curse God and die, would mean Job was trying to manipulate God being good so God would be good to him. Two, the friends who will be coming along, you must have done something to deserve it, kind of like the opposite to the sound of music, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Still trying to manipulate God, if only I had not sinned. Or, number three, trust God in all things. God's goodness has indeed given rise in Job to a love of goodness for its own sake. How do we go about making Job's choices? We get more of Job in the next couple of weeks. Psalm 26, a prayer for justice and protection from one falsely accused who has indeed walked in his integrity. That phrase again. It may have been part of a temple ritual have you ever felt in sync with the psalmist here? It's pretty us, me versus them. Are we good with that? Or is the psalmist perhaps fooling himself, herself? Is that something we might do? Verse 8, delight in the temple. Could be literal or metaphorical. If we say delight in the church, what would we mean? Genesis 2, 18-24, the man, human, is alone, and after identifying and naming all the animals, or even all the parts of creation, he's still alone. Parentheses here, my understanding is that in the ancient languages, man and woman were not as gender-linked as we take them today. I could be wrong, but that's what I remember somehow. How would this story and life and history itself be different if man 
had more the female connotation and woman more of the male. We're going to get Jesus on divorce in the gospel and commentators note that we need to be conscious of the divorced and remarried folks in the pews. Here, we need to be conscious of the LGBTQ folks among us. End of parentheses. Anyway, moving on. God puts the man to sleep so that the creation origin of the woman will be a mystery to him. And the man gives up a rib. Does having a partner involve giving up something of yourself? What did you give up? Would you give up? These two were originally one flesh, and Mark says will eventually be one again. Full humanity is bound in community, and with God, with others. Or can be a pet, or can a pet be an adequate, appropriate helper, partner? Where are you on that? A man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife or to his several wives, as the story continues. But human sexuality is affirmed. It is not the cause or result of a fall. Human sexuality can be beautiful or harmful, but in itself, it is not evil. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how wonderful is your name in all the earth. Just a really nice psalm. Good one to memorize, if you're looking for one. A bulwark against the foes comes from the mouths of babes and infants. What's that about? Does it connect with the integrity of Job and Psalm 26? Does it have to do with the innocence of children? God has made humans little lower than God. What does that mean? And gave, gives humans dominion overall. Was that a good idea on God's part? Are the sheep and oxen and travelers along the paths of the sea comforted and reassured by our dominion? Peace on the radio this morning about species going extinct because we have destroyed their habitat. And one note from the Hebrews lesson, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 and 2, 5 to 12. In uh, 2, 8, the writer says, As of yet, we do not see everything in subjection to the human." Should we find that reassuring? Mark 10, 2-16. Again, Jesus and the disciples are on the way, learning about the Christian way or life. And again, Jesus teaches publicly, then privately, then the disciples screw up. Again, sensitivity towards those who have divorced and remarried. There was a delightfully faithful young woman in one of my churches who had been divorced and who, as she took her turn at being a reader, at least twice was assigned to read this lesson. And it was difficult. And then there were some couples in our churches where we all hoped the woman would divorce her husband. And maybe some the other way around. How has the idea of divorce changed in your experience, if it has? The Pharisees quote Deuteronomy 24, which acknowledged that divorce was a reality and told how to divorce. Jesus pushes the conversation back to Genesis 1 and 2 and talks instead about marriage. He frames it in terms of God's will, not human experience. One writer says, essentially, our divorces indicate our divorce from God's will. But I'm not sure about that. 
In chapter 9, Jesus had talked about greatness while holding a child before them. And now the disciples want to send them away. These are men who argued over greatness and who had an appetite for power, one writer. So what is it about the children? Long quotation here. Two parts of Jesus' angry retort to the disciples need highlighting. One, it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. The disciples have bought into ancient society's valuation of children. They are not important. Children have no status and no rights, and thus their presence is a nuisance. Jesus sees things differently. In fact, the rule of God, parentheses, what I like to call the time of God's peace, belongs to persons like this, powerless, vulnerable, weak persons who are often deemed a nuisance. In rejecting the children, the disciples have not just made a slight error of judgment, they have missed the whole point of Jesus' ministry. And then two, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Not only do the children serve as poignant examples of those for whom the rule of God is intended, but also their manner of receiving it becomes the model for adults. The weight in chapter 10, verse 15, clearly falls on the verb receive, which rules out the sentimental drivel, I like that, about the innocence or naivety of children often offered as explanation of this verse. Well, parentheses, in fact, I was going to suggest just that. The text does not idealize any particular characteristic of children. Instead, it talks about the receiving of the kingdom by powerless persons who have no claims to stake out and no demands to make. The rule of God, again, as I like to say, the time of God's peace, comes as pure, unadulterated grace to hungry people at the crossroads and in the byways of life who are invited to attend a scrumptious banquet and to children without status. They have no excuses to give, no dowries to offer, no bargaining chips. They are eager to be taken up into Jesus' arms and be blessed. Hmm. That's all from um, text for preaching. So, who would that be today, the children? Where do we fit into that picture? And adulterated. That's an interesting word. Here's a prayer. Dear God, it is so hard for us adulterated ones to accept and welcome a time of peace that rests on grace and not power. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, may we find the willpower to give up our claims and to lay our demands along with our burdens and swords and shields down by the riverside and wait quietly for Jesus to take us in his arms and bless us. That's what I got for now.